I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, which provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, overcoming displacement, disease, financial ruin, abandonment and bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived. Loss and adversity are part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. Why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals about how they achieved success in the face of adversity and how you too can succeed against the odds. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're talking to the actor Jimmy Akingbola. Rising to fame in his role of Antoine Malik in the soap opera Holby City, the British-Nigerian actor now lives and works in LA and stars on several acclaimed shows, from Bel Air, a remake of the classic sitcom The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, crime thriller The Tower, and comedy drama Ted Lasso. But his younger years are seemingly worlds away from the glitz and glamour of Sunset Boulevard. At just two years old, Jimmy was placed in a children's home in East London, His father had disowned him, believing he was another man's child. His mother, who suffered from schizophrenia, abandoned him in a social security office, not knowing what would happen to her son. Alice, what was your feeling when he shared his memories of this period of his life? I think what's extraordinary is how optimistic he is about his childhood and how so many times when we've talked to people about being in foster care or being adopted, it's gone wrong. And this one, he was adopted by a white family in the East End of London and it went very right and actually his foster mother was amazing and really kind and supportive and loving to him and as was the whole family and then he also got to see his birth mother who came over and it just seemed like he had the best of both worlds and I thought it was just a fantastic chance to show that it can work. He says he feels that he has two families, his birth family and then his foster family and they're equally important to him. And he feels that there's an advantage in having those two worlds and being able to move between the two worlds. And I think he feels it makes him a better actor because he has the ability to play different roles, empathise with different situations, and move between multiple Mm. worlds, which you need when you're an actor. And he also cares very deeply about both families. And what's extraordinary is that his foster family are really instinctively want to look after him and help him and and they're very protective of him and particularly with the racism at school in fact they're both trying to help each other and i think that's rather amazing to listen to someone who's so empathetic but is also being empathized with and helped me in my area it was before it got very mixed it was probably probably predominantly white you know and i remember when black people would come to the area to get chased out the area by the kids on the corners or I would have to go out first and meet them to be like they're with me 
and they were like, oh, it's all right because they were Jimmy and Jimmy's cool. He's one, he's one of us. Do you know what I mean? It's like, really? oh gosh, even the language. I'm like, ah. Oh. And so, yeah, I saw a lot, got called a lot. Again, if it wasn't people saying about my family, it would be about, I'd have fights over like, you know, racial slurs. And he's not Pollyanna-ish about it. He does recognise that there are emotional difficulties and traumas in this childhood. But I think he wants other children who are in care or have been fostered to know that it's it can be OK. So he made a documentary about his roots called Handle With Care. And I think he wants other children in this situation to have a sense of positivity, that it doesn't have to be a disaster. Lenny James said, he's like, Jim, I just don't want to be seen as the the adopted kid, you know, all the time. You know, I just want to be seen as a, as a human being, as a man, as a creative. And so when I started doing this, I was like, yeah, I don't want that label mm-hmm. either. But it's a hard line to straddle. There's a sense of, it's bigger than me. It's about, not about ignoring the the, the tough uh, experiences and, 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 and the stats, but it is about leaning into the love, the celebration, that perseverance can lead to a life that maybe society thinks you're not going to have. Jimmy joined us at News UK headquarters on the 10th floor and we sat looking out across London and all the trains coming in and out of London Bridge and he reflected on how far he's come since his beginnings in foster care. You know what? It it does feel like a dream, you know, a, a, a dream that has come true, but I'm still in the middle of it that makes sense um well you can't want to wake up (laughs) no exactly exactly but also i think where i am now it's a great representation of i have the saying like a dare to dream you know um and it's not just about the success of my career it's like the dare to dream to to find a family like uh my foster family that showed me unconditional love and raised me and you know, are a big reason for me being the man I am today, as well as my biological family. You know, them, the, each one of my biological family members having their own personal journeys and things that they had to overcome, but they were still there for me in the best way they could. And I think without them, there would have been a, there's a different version of myself that would have been in the world, if that makes sense. And uh, And I think when I look at that, that is also part of my bigger dream. You know, as a kid, I always wanted to be with my biological family deep down. But at times I was like, then I felt guilty because I'm like, I've got this lovely mm-hmm. like foster family and this lovely white foster family that are treating me like their son and, and I was part of the family. But you still can't ignore that pull. I think my brother talks about in the documentary of to that desire to be with your with your blood family. And I think as a young kid, you know, I was like, two when I was fostered but you know I think through the ages of four or five you're having these big conversations with social workers them trying to explain to you why you're not with your <laughs> biological family why your dad doesn't want you and it and it and it took a while I think for me to understand but I think the 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 naivety and and the strength that I had got gotten from my foster family of love mm-hmm. I, honestly I truly believe as a young kid I was like well this family loved me <laughs> And, you know, I'm not there some by, you know, blood. So surely when my dad sees me in these brown eyes, just like my mum would tell the story when she saw me and chose me, it's going to be fine. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I think 
that desire to be loved by my father and to be with my biological family, it, it never ended. Mm -hmm. And uh, But what was great that my siblings, they, they filled that hole for me, you know? My brother Shola, you know, he's the eldest. Then it's uh, Maruke, she's the second eldest. And then my brother Shegan, my late brother Shegan, who passed away uh, Christmas Day in 2019, you know? And so like, we really, I think, changed the dynamic of, you know, like, like the family, the family cycle, mm -hmm. you know? It's like, you know, my mom and dad are human beings. They tried their best, but I think we realized as siblings, we can change the dynamic in terms of where our family is going and how we want to be as the next generation. And what, do you remember, if anything, of your life before foster care? Do you have any sense or have you been told what, what it was like? It's an interesting question that, right? Because I wanna, when, you, when I get questions like this, I think about the power of photographs, you know? And it's like, okay, I might, do I remember this memory? Mm -hmm. Or is it like someone's told me something, I'm looking at the photograph and, and I'm creating it. But I do remember drinking out of a yellow cup uh, orange juice and digestive biscuits, you know, and like probably like eating and drinking at the same time and that, that taste and that sensation in the mm -hmm. mouth. I do remember that and that isn't a picture. I really do remember that. And I think I do remember the sense of being around a lot of kids. And your uh, biological parents? My biological, I have, I, I have faint memories of being with my mum and I looked at my files and they talk about my mum would visit me a lot when I was at the children's home, Windermere. So I think it makes sense that I have these faint memories, which was a, the memories about just me and her mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And I think because I left the children's home and went straight to my uh, foster family, there's no other way I would have really had those memories unless they were from the time when my mum was trying to raise me or the interactions when my mum would come and see me when she was well uh, at the children's home. So that's, yeah, you know, anything else, I feel like I might be creating it, but very faint, I do mm. remember. And I think that explains my connection with my biological mum, Eunice, her name was. Can you remember, did either of them ever talk to you about when they first came over? Because they came over in 1967 from Nigeria and it must have been really difficult, not least the weather, but yeah. also the atmosphere and the racism. Did they ever talk to you about that? My dad talked about it a bit. I think they talked about coming over and them having a bit of a community, you know, like a few Nigerian families that they could help each other. But I remember him talking about like the struggle to sort of like find work, his aspirations also to study and the balance to how do you find time to study? And, you know, he was self-taught, very intelligent guy. How do you find space to study and raise a family, you know? And, um, and he, he did talk about that being difficult. And he talked about once the extended sort of other families went back to Nigeria and moved on, he felt like that support network made it very hard, you know? And then I think, you know, he didn't go into it, but I think being, you know, an African man and and trying to make your way in those in those early years was really, really difficult. The way people would talk to you and treat you, you know, he did sort of touch on that briefly. Um, and there was a sense of, I feel like he put up with a lot. I feel like he put up with a lot, you know? And yet, and also I feel like 
this happens quite a bit where especially Africans, a lot of high educated Africans in this country, sometimes no matter what their qualifications are, they can't get in at jobs at the level that they should. Mm. And so they end up doing jobs that they're overqualified for. You know, you see a lot of cleaners, you know, on the underground or in the clubs and stuff like that. And I feel like my dad sort of, he found himself in a, I think he worked for Royal Mail or something for a little bit, but like doing a job where he's like, no, this is, I'm, I'm much better, better mm. than this, but this is actually helping provide for my family. So I think he struggled with that in terms of being seen as, uh, Akin, Akin Bola's in the UK. We expect him to do well and, you know, study and make money. And, and I think he was just surviving. Mm. And then when my mom and dad uh, divorced, then my dad was left with three kids. It was me and my mom. We were on our own. And then I think, my dad struggled. I think he was a security guard at times. So that meant he went around doing those hours. So that meant that the kids were <laughs> looking after themselves or my older brothers and sister looking after my younger brother, mm. Shegan. And I think, you know, we're just talking about being a single parent and uh, and him trying his best. I think my sister said he tried his best, but it probably wasn't, it wasn't good enough. And I think that's why I find my forgiveness with my father, you know, that that he tried his best. He was brokenhearted as well. You know, he loved my mom. The times that we were talking, he did talk about first meeting her. And I think the big dream, we started off this conversation about the dream. The big dream for my mom and dad was to come to the UK to build, you know, they had a property in, I think, Chelsea. And then they had one in East London. They sold the one in Chelsea for some reason. And then got two in East London and they lost them both during the, you know, the breakup. And, and I think, that that sense of loss for my dad really had an impact. So not only did you lose like your homes, what were a part of the legacy for your your children, but also you've lost the love of your life, mm. you know? And I think he never recovered from that. You know, my dad was okay, but there was like a repeating story going on in his head, you know, uh, that sometimes I felt like, you know, in terms of mental health, it, it was challenging for him, you mm. know, and he was on his own for the rest of his life. While my mom, you know, I think, back to your question, she really got affected, I think. You never, people talk about schizophrenia, how how does it come about? And I think there is a, a an association with people moving to different environments, countries. Uh, after birth, my mom had four kids. She lost one of, she'd have had the five. So you think about that. There's a lot, there's a pressure of that. How do you be in this new world? Do you know mm. what I mean? And then you think about maybe the difficulties and the abuse and, and 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 that pressure and what that must do, you know, in terms of your your, your mental health. So and how did that has schizophrenia manifest itself? How did how did that come across to you or your family or your father? Oh gosh, I, I my siblings talk a lot about there was a lot of arguments. It's weird. My mom and dad were both very stubborn Africans, right? Very, <laughs> just like, those that are listening that know like African parents and especially Nigerians. They are very passionate, do you know what I mean? And so, and she was strong. So she, you know, my dad was a little bit like in Africa, in Africa, the man is the man of the house, listen to me. And my mom wasn't that kind of woman, you know, <laughs> which I'm happy about. So I think there were, there were a lot of fireworks at times when it started not going well. When I look at the pictures, it's heartbreaking. They were so in love, you know, and I don't know when that moment started changing, but when I hear from my siblings, I think it was the arguments was the beginning. And I mm. think 
in those times, my mum was just seen as being difficult. You know what I mean? It was hard to go, oh. It, it was, wasn't the, mental it, health. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, when my dad would talk about those times, I would hear that he's really not acknowledging the illness, yeah. you know? Actually, I think the big moment actually is actually leaving me at the social security office. Yeah. Right? So that's that's odd. That's strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, she left me during an argument uh, with the social security office about money. As a single mom and like, I need mm-hmm. more money. So they knew who she was. So mm-hmm. it's, she just left the baby here. Right. And it's like, well, let's let's look into that mm. and then i think it was properly diagnosed there you mm. know uh, and your father thought she was having an affair didn't he and he thought you may not be he did son. he did he did he did he did and that was unfortunately the narrative that stayed with my mom and i i don't know i i there was a moment that i think there was a moments where there, there might have been a guy around you know what i mean but like the the big thing for me is that when i asked my mom am i my dad's son she's like yes mm. And then um, I still needed to be sure. And I think when my, my dad questioned it, he wouldn't do a blood test with me, but I did it by siblings. And that was 99.6% four right. brothers, me and my oldest brother. So that was all I needed, you mm-hmm. know? But again, my dad was stubborn. He he didn't, he didn't accept it, you know? After us being in each other's lives for like 10, 15 <laughs> years, it was... Again, and I think that's the stubborn. It's like a cultural thing, I think, of a certain generation. My dad was the kind of guy, if he said, if this table's, if I said it's white and he says it's blue, it has to be blue. Mm. And if you go, no, I don't agree with you. It's like, uh-uh, don't, you cannot speak to your elders <laughs> like this. If I said this is blue, it's blue. But also he'd lost so much because of what yes. he said. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that's why everyone's like, Jimmy, why are you not so angry? Why, are you, why do you forgive? And I think I, I decided to choose love. And I think because my beginning came from love, my mum, even though she left, there's a sense, my mum left me, but there was a, she was struggling. Mm. And I think with the illness, there's that fine line of it really overtaking someone and there's Mm. still moments of clarity. She may have been trying to protect you almost. I honestly, I truly believe that. And I tell you what really helps me believe this is that in my files, there was a moment where my mum they talk about my mom was preparing the the bedroom at a flat for me, and she came to the children's home. She's I'm struggling. I, I can't do this. Mm. So he's in the best place right now, mm. you know. And there were moments when I was with my foster family. I went to hospital, split open my head, and and that care that a mother has for a child it never went. Mm. And I, and I think that really helped me as well. She never forgot me, mm. even if there were times I was like, okay, you're a little bit on the edge today, so I can feel the illness might be a little bit. And then there'll be times where it's just it's just my mom. You mm. know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and and that fine line was also I was like, oh, my mom is very she's very strict, <laughs> you know. But then she she loves music, food, and she she got beautiful laugh, and and she really got on my foster family. But if something was having that she didn't agree with she would she would let me know you mm-hmm. know and that was quite interesting as a kid of like a different parenting from my foster mom to my biological mom you know and how were you chosen by your foster family from the care home they were called the crows weren't yeah they? yeah i think basically my mom gloria my mom already had two boys they had a third which was my sister denise and i think even then that's a family that's my dad's going well look I love you, these are your boys, these are my boys. Like, that simple. When you hear my mom speak on the documentary, I think my dad was different from her, but very, like, similar in terms of, well, 
there's nothing to talk about. They're my boys. And yeah, and so I think my mom and dad talked about, they were always aware that there are other children out there that don't, you know, have homes. And- um, This is your foster mom. This is my foster mom, yeah, yeah. And so they went to the children's home just to foster, you know, and, and, and my mom actually, I was in the island at Carrick Fergus and I didn't know this. She goes, yeah, I had, I did have another boy for a moment. This was a nurse that was studying and I had this, you know, I think I fostered him for a few months and then we gave him back. And she said at that point, she didn't know if she wanted to do it full time and whatnot. Mm. And I think going to the foster home, being open to who they're gonna see, they literally did fall in love with me. Mm. And I think there's also a thing of like, if my mom, my biological mom would have got better, there's a version I would only been with the crows for like, I don't know, like a year yeah, or two, right. but yeah. my mom never got better and they were never gonna give me back. So mm. I think it wasn't even like, we're going for a, a black child. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 I always like to point that out just cause I think optics, you know, you see pictures and you know, the clip bait era that we're in, it was just like, yeah, they could have picked a young white kid, a girl, what, mm. it doesn't matter, mm. you know. What do you they, think the chemistry was then? The chemistry, I think it was, you know, I think my mom and dad, they were like white working class family that in East London, Plasto, Forest Gate, you know, Stratford County Town. I think they were used to of the diversity of East London. And I just think they were a bit ahead of the curve. It wasn't an issue for them to have a young kid that didn't look like them. Mm. Whereas I grew up in East London around those times, some of my other friends' families or other families, it would have been a big deal. Mm. We could have a conversation, but you want me to bring this kid into my home? And it would have been really challenging. But the universal theme throughout my family was like, this is my son, this is my brother. It wasn't even like foster son or foster brother. It, was, it, it, it wasn't naive, it was just like, I don't see it as any other mm, thing. Mm, I see it like this. Great. It was really great. Mm. And it helped me as a young kid be like, yeah, oh, this is my family, mm. you know? And you, did, you, did you have a sense at all of being different just because of the color of your skin? I was really interested that you, your idols were Sidney Poitier, Denzel Washington, Eddie Murphy. I was wondering whether you had a sense of wanting to kind of explore your black identity. Yes, no, definitely. Like, as soon as I came outside the house, it really became apparent that, you know, just from... I think questions, or if I left East London and went to, I don't know, we'd go to Hastings, Broadstairs, all these like lovely, beautiful British historical places, but they would be staring at me because they wouldn't see that many black people in those days. And, and it would be even odder because I'm with a white family, you know? Mm. And so that would be hard. But I think when I look back, what they were great at was it's that weird thing, right? It's like when people say they don't see color, and and it, and it, and, it, and, it, and I think that statement is a bit almost having a bit of a negative connotation, you know. But they had that. I feel like my upbringing they had a nice balance of they did and they didn't, you know. They didn't in terms of it wasn't always uh, an issue or part of leading our conversations, but they did in terms of these are your role models. Like, you know, like, right. like or, 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 or mm. even not telling me they're my role models, but these are people you should be aware of. You know, like, oh, even like Chris Akabusi, my mom loves mm. him. Mm. But like, you know, I, I'm big into sport, yeah. but like the, the positive, he's from the same place as you. Mm. Or meet this 
social worker that, or this home help that I know. Her name's Ola. She's from, like, she was very good at that, my mom and my dad. And, uh, and so I think that helped me realize that there was space for me to really connect and lean in to my identity. And, and they helped, like, talking about Sidney Poitier. I remember, like, stuff like free music, Eddie Grant you know, and Bob Marley, Luther Vandross, like stuff like that. One of my brothers would listen to NWA, to Ice T, Ice Cube. And everyone's like, I was like, yeah, yeah. And you know, my eldest would do body popping and it's like, they're all like cultural things and also things attached to my identity. And they were doing that anyway, Mm. you know, just like the world is loving Afrobeat right now and it's coming from Africa. And so I thought I was very lucky with that. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest today, Jimmy Akinbola. Did you feel quite protective of your family in some ways? Yes. Yes. And why? Is that because you felt you loved them so much or because you were grateful or? Mixture of all of them. I love them so much so grateful if i had a fight nine times out of ten it would be someone they wouldn't even know but they would say you know they would cuss my mom or my dad you know what i mean and i, and I would just go to blows and that's because mm. i was so protective but when i think about it, i was protective of both moms but like you know my mom was a well and and uh also what my foster family represented for me you know what i mean i i, I just i was so protective of it and also to the point where I did feel grateful. I did feel grateful. I felt very, very grateful. And and at times, so when I would yearn to be with my biological family, it used to sort of mess me up a bit. I was like, oh, oh can I can I have these feelings? You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and I think I got, I can't remember what age I got to, but I got to the place where I was like, actually, I don't want to change anything because that means I would lose this foster family. I think I got to the point where I was in touch with all my family members, my biological family members, maybe even started talking to my dad. And I was just like, you know what? There's a lot that's gone on. But right now I have the blessing of two families and if they all know each other, they've all met. That's such an optimistic view, though, mm. isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. Do you think you were naturally just optimistic as a child? You no, know I think I get that from my foster mom, Gloria. You know, you see how she comes across in the in the documentary. I think I got the majority of it from her. And then I think the rest just sort of 
came out of me as I grew up. So how often did you see your biological parents when you were growing up? So my mum, I would, I would see her maybe sometimes when she was in a good place, once every two, three weeks. Okay. You know, Saturdays would be the day. Like, mum's coming. So I'd always she could bring fruit, a toy, give me some money. And there was the street that if I looked, came out of my house, I could see right down to the bottom of the street. And 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 I see her walking down towards the house. And so I would just run towards her, mm. give her a big cuddle, kiss, and straight away, what's in the back? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, and then there would be lots of gaps. You know? And were there times when you were expecting her and she didn't just yeah. didn't turn the up? The gaps that must would be there. So and then the gaps would be like, yeah, she yeah. is in a, she's been sectioned. Uh, she's not well at the moment. Um, so that that was that was tough when I. Uh, but then it's weird. I got used to that rhythm. You know, I think I had such a great foster family that those gaps. I did notice when I hadn't seen my mum for a long while, but not in a way that I would have noticed if I didn't have this amazing family mm. looking after me. And I think my mum constantly, as I got older, my foster mum, Gloria, sort of explaining as well as she could about my mum's not well, it's not her fault. And, and I think that also helped me grow and with a, lo- a level of understanding and love and compassion, you know? And like you say, the protective of like, I can't hear anything bad about my mom. You mm. know what I mean? But she was really supportive to you at school as well, wasn't she? When you were called names, she she, she really backed you up. She was, yeah. My mom would turn up for me at school, like if I'm having arguments and fights with other kids uh, in the area. Like, yeah, we were like a family. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and as well as if I'm being naughty at school, mm. <laughs> I'm like I'm being naughty, and I'll be, you know, my mom and dad would would treat me just like their own and tell me to, you know stop it and you know i'll get yeah i get grounded and stuff like that but yeah i think the way they would turn up for me was amazing you know it was because there wasn't this edited version of it they turned up for me exactly as they would turn up for their their children that they gave birth to in a way you very much merge both cultures don't you and you yeah. when you talk about cooking yes both cultures or yes. theater or films or music and yeah and that's astonishing to be able to take the best of everything, really. Yeah, I do love that. I do love that. Like how I can, you know, I was back at in Canning Town going to my barbers, Mr. T's. And, you know, it's like uh, African Nigerian barbers. And at the same time, there's a pie mash shop next door called Nathan's, you know, and I get pie mash and liquor. Or I can go to Squires up by, you know, Canning Town Station and get some jollof rice. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I love that that really does represent me and who I am. And I think also a lot of like British born, you know, uh, you know, whether you're Nigerian, Ghanaian, you know, Bayesian or Jamaican, that sense where, you know, you're born in a country where you do enjoy all the fruits of the, uh, of the country's labor in some ways, if that makes sense. But yeah, and I've enjoyed just, especially with the actor, I've enjoyed to sort of lean into both sides mm. of who I am, mm. you know, and, and, do, and in a way, do you think that makes you a better actor? Because you are you kind of can bridge these different worlds and different roles. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I think that came from, I mean, look, the young boy, the young kid, that inner child, again, this was in the documentary. Of course, I desire to be loved, mm-hmm. right? And watching people's expressions and their faces and how they react to you. I've always done that as a kid. Mm. I've always done that. How they respond to me, 
even how they respond to like the TV shows. We would watch like Only Fools and Horses together, Fresh Prince together. <laughs> uh, I used to watch all like the great Eddie Murphy films with my older brothers. Some other films I shouldn't have been watching as a young kid with my mm. older brothers. We wouldn't tell my mom and dad. I do see that connection of like observing people, mm. but then also I feel like being the outsider or the odd one out or the only black child in certain areas, I think I learned to sort of be a shapeshifter, you know? Mm. Yeah. And then even going to secondary school, the cool kids, not so cool kids, you know what I mean? Like the sport, the sporty people, the, the creatives and, and then very like- I don't, Were you I'm the not, cool sporty one? I was all of them. And, and I, I loved it because people were like, why are you talking? Why are you doing that? I was like, why? I don't tell me what to do. I mm. love just being able to go anywhere. And my drama teacher, Mr. Tyers, he would put me in all sorts of like groups to help them with drama. And it was almost like he saw that I could be an actor before me. And I, I wasn't aware. I was just like, oh, I work with these groups. I don't care. Mm. I just loved it. But I didn't see what he was doing or what it could be. It was just a natural thing. So... I do think that helped me as an actor, mm. you know? I mean, look, even if we get into navigating like, my own industry where I can look at all my contemporaries, like a generation of your Robbie G's, your David Harewoods and Will Johnson's, even, you know, Lenny Henry, like how the industry was for them. And like, there, there wasn't that many opportunities for them at all. And there is a sense of, I feel like a lost generation you know, and actually, how do you be the only person in the room and navigate yourself in these rooms to try and get the jobs, to build relationships? And I do feel like there's something about my upbringing experience that I am comfortable in a mm. lot of different rooms, mm. whereas there's some friends of mine that have had a different upbringing, you know, that have been with their families that look like them. And sometimes there is this thing of like, oh, I'm not, I'm not, mm. not feeling quite comfortable. And I find that very fascinating, mm. you know? And I, I can be comfortable in both places, mm -hmm. you know. Did you experience much racism when you were growing up? Yeah, it's interesting because I talk about like in the heart of East London, but I grew up in Plasto and then, you know, 10 minutes down the road, you've got Canning Town. And so it wasn't as diverse as it is now, but there was enough diversity. But me, in my area, it was, before it got very mixed, it was probably, probably predominantly white, you know, and... I remember when black people would come to the area, they'd get chased out of the area by right. the kids on the corners. Mm. Or I would have to go out first and meet them to be like, they're with me. And they would be like, oh, oh, you're all right, because they're with Jimmy. And Jimmy's cool. He's one, he's one of us. Do you know what I mean? It's like, really? oh, gosh. Even the language, I'm like, ah. Oh. And so, yeah, I saw a lot. Got called a lot. Again, if it wasn't people saying about my family, it would be about, I'd have fights over, like, you know, racial slurs. Mm. Um, but also, I gotta be honest, even within the black community, it wasn't cool right now. Everyone's like proud to be African. Like it wasn't cool to be African. Like there was a lot of internal racism, you know, prejudice, I suppose, if like, you know, the cool thing was to be Jamaican, you know? Okay. Okay, you know, like the language, like, that, like I know a lot of Africans and some that are older than me and around my age that they were like, they, they had a lot of issues where people called them African booty scratchers, you know, like, like like a lot of negative sort of energy and words by other black people, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so I think that's also another, another discussion of uh, growing up in an area 
and having a level of sort of prejudice, racism on both sides, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and did they ever call you out for being with a white family? Um, I've had a, I had a few of those, yeah. yeah. I, I talked about, yeah, I had a few of those. You know, you, you get, uh, there was names like Bounty and stuff like that. Really terrible, oh. you know, really, yeah. Uh, and then the other, the N-word on the other side, do you know what mm. I mean? From So, and then it was that thing of, you know, there's jokes about like, uh, how black are you? Do you know what I mean? Right. You, you know, you, mm. if you don't hit a quota, you get your black card revoked, you know? Mm. And so I can make a joke about it, but there were times where that could be a pressure, mm. you know, uh, from from black people and white people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Why, why can't you sing? It's just like, oh, gosh. Oh, you know. But yeah, I I did. I did. I got I got a lot. When I was young, obviously, I, I spoke to my mom. And there was the times where it was like, I would share it with her, but I wouldn't always have the answers, you know? How do you have that conversation with your foster mom, you know? But I think what happened is that when I'd have those moments, I was able to go... Not everybody's the same. Because I'm looking at this family going, look, look, look how they're treating me, you know? Uh, but it was still very hard. Mm. Still very hard. Like, I remember the Stephen Lawrence stuff, you know? It's not far from where I grew up. I think it was at Eltham and stuff like that, through the Blackwood Tunnel. And like, I'm like, and I know like the look of those boys and that there was like replicas of those types of people, you know, in my area. Just mm. like when people see a group of young black kids, they're probably innocent, but because they got hoodies, it's like, oh. Mm. But like, I knew those guys, you know, that attacked Stephen. I could say, look, this, these guys are like that. These guys are like that. Because I've seen it with my own eyes. And so that really hit me. You know, that really hit me. And then like being with a family that are not like that. But it's like, again, it's like when you're that young, the emotion and the language, you, you don't know how to, mm. to talk about. But that really hit me. And then on the other side, I remember one time my sister got, uh, she got robbed. I think two black guys in Upton Park. And I was like, oh, like seeing her crying in the family home and and how that made me feel. And then I think also seeing like something bad on the news and it's it's a black guy or, mm. you know, that, that would really sort of jar me, you know? And I would, I'd feel away in my home, even though I don't even know the person, it's got nothing mm. to do with me. But so I was very aware, I was aware of that dynamic mm. and, you know, I, I read quite a lot. I was very aware about the riots and, you know, you know, Brixton and 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 sort of new cross fight. Like I was, I was very aware of the dynamics, mm. you know, and yet I could feel that there was an element of change. And what's interesting is you managed to turn that dual identity into a strength, yes. rather than a kind of vulnerability. Yeah, it could have been the opposite. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I think was that Gloria partly. I think. You know what? I think it was a bit of that, but also I think the more I I learned about myself and about my culture and and I, I was confident in who I was, I, I think I decided to to pull it all together. You know what you I mean? You were great at football as well. Did you not want to become a footballer? I did. I did. I, I definitely, like, footballer was the main thing, you know. I mean, and it's really interesting because football, right? I've been watching it since I was a kid and, like, John Barnes and, like, What's your Ian, team? Right, yeah, Liverpool's my team. But even again, like, I was aware of the lack of representation. I was, the reason I know that the fashion news were in a, you know, Fostered and Bernardo's was because I was a big football fan of Justin and John Fashion News. 
And then I heard that they were collecting the football stickers. Oh, they're Nigerian. Like, you know, like I was so aware, like I could name the few, you know, black players. Um, and, uh, and so it's really interesting because I feel my desire to be a footballer does align with my desire to be an actor. You know, it's changing now when there's tons of people that look like me. But I, w- I was very aware that the football pitch for me was the stage or the film set. You know, scoring a goal right. was me nailing <laughs> a role, standing over it. Yeah. Like, yeah. seriously. And then, uh, and how hard it was. I was very mm. aware that there's only Lenny on TV. Right. And, you know, and, and that was it. <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? Like, so I was very aware, like, I'm going into an industry that's tough. But maybe it's a bit of naivety and a, and a, and a sense of, look at my life so far. There's, I can tell it could have been a different way. So, when did you get your first audience? When I was 16. Right. 16, Epping Forest College. I went to Epping Forest College just to kill time because I still wanted to be a footballer. Uh, I think Carol Graham was the principal. She tried to put me in a BTEC National first diploma. I was like, even though I didn't want to be an actor, I was like, I'm better than that. I'm not doing <laughs> three years here. I need two years. She's like, okay, redo English. And then after two weeks, the assignment was to do a monologue. Fact or fiction in front of the the new first years and the second years that are about to graduate at the end of the year, and I remember writing it as a like a Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy stand up monologue, and it was basically about the first time I met my brother that was a year older, me Shegan, who passed away, and we, my brother Shola gave us five pounds each, and we went out to the West End and we played Street Fighter computer game all night at Trocadero when Trocadero was <laughs> showing my age here <laughs> and we got arrested because we were out all night you know so crazy things happening you know and then we uh, went past this bakery and we uh, pocketed orange juice some cross buns and and you know started eating them and then there was a Volvo car coming and I was like well, let me just let this car go by and then it sped up <laughs> and then they got out and they arrested us all because over the last three, four months, that place had been hit and they thought that we were the people keep stealing. Uh, so I did a whole story about that. I was in a, before I got into my police cell, I had these hip hop baggy jeans. I had all the, all the buns down. <laughs> so I was like, I can eat it when I get into my cell. They patted me down, undone the bottom of my jeans and it all fell out. And I just told it like a comedy story. And, and then it's so interesting. I even acted, I wasn't talking to my dad then, my biological dad. I acted the role as my dad because I was very aware of like, because I grew up watching like people like Gina Yashere and Richard Blackwood and, you know, Robbie G, all that real McCoy and Mira Sayel, that sense of like performance, you know, I suppose through a black lens. I was like, it can't be my white dad coming to me. Mm. The the funny uh, is my Nigerian dad culture because you know you're going to get seriously in trouble. You know what I mean? That your Nigerian dad's going to have to come to you to the police station. And I just remember like, had music on it. I was dressed a certain way and I got a standing ovation. And in that moment, it was like an arrow hit my heart. I was like, oh, I don't want to be a footballer anymore. I want, I'm 16. I'm going to leave here, go to drama school, not university because, you know, I can be academic, but I'm a more like, I want to get up and do it. Do you know what I mean? I'm more practical. And I've never looked back. Seriously, that was the moment. I was 16. And what hurts me, I don't have the speech, but, you know, I do remember that was probably 
one of the first things and only things that I've written. And I think it was because it was baked in so much truth. Yeah. And then I just padded it out with comedy, you know, and and it was the first time me and my brother, I always wanted a twin. Me and my brother were a year apart, so we were like twins. And I think it was nice just to share that story. I suppose in some ways that's a live performing version of my documentary in some ways, mm. as I'm talking to you now, this mm. is just occurring to me. And there was something, I think, uh, cathartic about that for me. And you were one of only four black students at drama school, weren't you, in your year. Did yeah. you feel when you came out that you got typecast? Do you still, has the industry changed enough, do you think? It, it is changing. Mm. Uh, I still think it's changing a bit too slowly, but it is changing. Yeah, mm. I, I don't think I got typecast. I was just very aware of the lack of opportunity and roles, you know? And there's always been one in, one out, you know? So, like, I, can, I came out of drama school, I was like, well, what's the one in, one out right now? I'm like, oh, it's David Oyero Chiwetel, all right? They're a bit older than me, but it's like, okay. And above them, it was Adrian Lester and Hustle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So anything that gets made, age, and I love, these are my friends, mm-hmm. but I was like, but like, and then there was a period when David Harewood and the Vice, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I was like, okay. And, but like, just, there was no consistency with it. And then I started thinking about women. I was like, I don't see anyone. And then I remember seeing uh, the Mike Lee film, you know, uh, with Marianne Jean-Baptiste. And then I'm like, wait, you know, she had to leave the UK because she got nominated for an Oscar, you know, won, I think, the award in France or whatnot. And then was asked to do doctors, and and it was just like, wow, this this is crazy, you know. Uh, and and I think I was I was aware, but I was like, well, maybe it might be different for me because I've come into this world and my upbringing is a certain way, and I was very aware as a young age that my because when I met other people, and they would tell me their stories. I'm like, mine's not like that. So mm-hmm. I think there was a version of me going, well. If my life's already gone this way, mm. maybe, maybe it was a bit naive, maybe there's a version of me that can carve out a career in an industry where it's really tough. And that, change the dialogue. Yeah, and, and, and change the dialogue. Yeah. Did you always get sort of Othello rather than Hamlet? Did you have that sense that there were roles that you were destined to play because you were meant to play them? Uh, that's a really interesting. In terms of Shakespeare, mm. I, I identified it with... Aaron from Titus Andronicus. I was at our Academy of Live, Live Recorded Arts and my teacher, Leon Eagles, he was like, dear boy, you don't have to do this just because he's black, you know? And I was like, I didn't know he was black. Mm-hmm. I just read the whole play and it felt like a Tarantino movie. So it's very graphic. And I was just like, as a young sort of 18 year old, I was like, this is amazing. And I understand it. Cause there was this narrative of Shakespeare. You're like, oh, I, don't, I don't get it. So I've always, identified with Aaron because what I loved about Aaron, he was like, I own all the things that I do and I don't care what you do to me, you know? And I actually had issues with the Othello because I had issues with how sometimes his intelligence was manipulated and I, I didn't believe some of the the way he was duped. And also, again, as a young kid, I was, I was like, there's another way to direct Othello. The title is Othello. You've, 
Iago's got all the lines, mm. but if you do just focus on the story, there's a balance to it. Whereas I feel like the majority of the time it is the Iago show, mm. and and so even that as a young kid, I was like, I was like, I'm not bothered about Othello, mm. you know. But when it came, I was like, right, I'm going <laughs> okay. to do it, but I'm going to really try and do a version where there's a bit more of a balance, and I, and I think we got to do that. But again, I think that's my awareness of like the. the the optic lens of like representation and what's going on. What yeah. about Jeffrey, the role you play in Bel Air, which is a yes. sort of remake of the classic Fresh Prince of Bel Air. And you said that, that playing that role was a dream come yeah. true. Why was that this sense of going full circle for you? Yeah, well, first of all, I grew up like many of us watching the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I think it was 6 p.m. every Thursdays or Tuesdays. We'd go from Home and Away, Neighbours, <laughs> Fresh Prince, and sing every theme tune to each one. Home and Away. I can't remember the name of the soundtrack right Neighbors. now. And then this Neighbors. is a story. Yeah. yeah, you know. That would be it as a family. What I loved about seeing like that kind of family, like a wealthy family, you know, that happened to be black, welcome to this young, welcome this young kid that I identified with, you know, as being from somewhere else. But the difference, not that my, my foster family weren't wealthy, they were a class family, but that unconditional love that they showed Will. I didn't know. Up until I started doing my documentary, then I booked Bel Air, that Benny Medina wrote that story because it's based on his life. Benny Medina was adopted by a white family in the US, said to Quincy Jones, this is my story. Quincy Jones, let's make it. Uh, We've had uh, different strokes, so we ain't doing that. Mm. Let's change, let's change the dial, and let's just change your family to a black wealthy family because there are families like me, Quincy Jones, that are not in the industry, and that's an important. It needs to be represented in a different way, like the Huxtables. So, for me, the significance when people ask me this question, I'm like, it's because Bel Air is the biggest care story in the world. Mm. You know, the the root of it, Benny Medina is a version of me. So Will was playing me, and I didn't really understand and get it, you know? And, and you met Will Smith. And what I met did he Will say? Smith. Will Smith was like, he, first of all, he just takes up the space. He's such a friendly guy. And he was like, look, my family love you. We love what you're doing. You know, you're one of our favorite characters. And, you know, get, are you ready? Get ready. You know, you're like, oh, I don't know what you mean, but I'm trying to brace myself. But... What I loved is that they watched the first episode over Christmas and like his kids, they were all just so on board with it. But I actually had more of a deeper conversation with uh, Joseph Marcel. And I said to him, Joseph, how was it for you? And he's like, Jimmy, he's like, D enjoy the journey. Enjoy being the Brit on the show. And that's never left me. And actually, going back to your question, watching it, I, I, and Joseph Marcel playing Jeffrey, but that kind of role, like all the one-liners, the way he would sort of, you know, diss Uncle Phil here and there. But there was also a sense of, like, I'm from East London, so I don't know anyone that speaks like that Jeffrey. So when I got this role, and because I've always grown up in terms of, like, we're not a monolith, there's all different versions. You're just talking about me. I'm like, you know, no one's the same, you know? But I'm always like this space to show the different versions of us as human beings and different versions of us in terms of from a black community perspective. So straight away, I was like, I want to go the other way. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and my director was on the same page of like, 
let's see East London Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. If we said that's Sloan Square <laughs> Jeffrey or whatever, you know, you know, what does East London Jeffrey look like? And let's make sure he's not a stereotype, you know, uh, and that he's he's book smart, street smart, and you know, very complicated. And what does uh, Jeffrey in 2023 look like? Because Black Help, we're not doing that as well. And and again, I think because of the time that I've come up in the industry, I've always tried to be aware of these extra layers and uh, things about representation. My company, Trifles Creative Network, we've always been banging the drum of diversity inclusion before they became buzzwords. But also I think that's been my upbringing. You mm. know, it's been diverse, mm. inclusive from mm. when I was born and raised. And I worked at Stratford East. Uh, Philip Headley was the artistic director there. And, and their program was so diverse. So a lot of my early theater education was like black and Asian theater, as well as like people like Murray Melving and Kate Williams and Joan Littlewood. So, and I, I just look at that and that, that is who I am. I'm a melting pot. I'm a mishmash of so many different things. And is being a care leaver part of that, or having grown up in foster care, do you feel that it's important that you can show that you don't have to be destroyed by that, that you can kind of overcome even difficult things. Yes. And because the educational outcomes for children who grow up in care are pretty terrible. Yeah. Do, does that worry you? And do you feel that in a way you can, you're can you showing that it doesn't have to be like that? Yes, I do. I think I've never hidden the fact that I was fostered, but I've never sort of been the one to bang the drum and randomly just bring it you know, bring it out in the open. And so I think I did get to a place in my life that I feel it's very important for anyone that's been through the care system to be shown that the stats are the stats, but they don't have to dictate your future, you know? So even making handle with care, I said to myself, I want that 13 year old self mm -hmm. version of myself mm -hmm. to watch this and be inspired. You might still be going through something, but you're seeing enough inspiration and celebration to be like, yeah, things are tough right now, but I can still be what I want, whatever I want to be. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not just about being famous, right? Would it be a teacher or you know a, a mechanic? That thing of like, because society is saying that you're if you've gone through the care system. You're not going to really have that great education, drugs, incarceration, as you know, Chris Akabusi said. Uh, some people are not around anymore. Uh, yes, there is the abuse, but, and it's not about denying that, but it's about, I think, sharing whatever the percentage is, the other side of the story, that there are carers that do take, you know, care of these children and mm -hmm. change their lives. There are, there are, there is love, there is. I suppose love really can change a young child's life. Mm. Um, and I just felt like it's rare that I saw that. I can't, I'm so used to like, you know, the terrible, like Victoria Kalimbe. I remember seeing that story in the news and it's terrible. But does that feel like a huge responsibility now? It does. It does, Alice. And you know what? Lenny James said, he's like, Jim, I just don't want to be seen as the, the adopted kid, you know, all the time. You know, I just want to be seen as a, as a human being, as a man, as a creative. And so when I started doing this, I was like, yeah, I don't want that label mm -hmm. either. But it's a hard line to straddle, you know. And so it is pressure, but I, there's a sense of it's bigger than me. Mm -hmm. It's bigger than me. And, and, and I think the response 
offer the documentary of people. When I made the documentary, through a positive lens, I wanted to celebrate people that foster and adopt kids. I wanted to celebrate even the parents that had to give up their kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to celebrate the siblings from the foster families, the siblings of the biological families, you know, and the youth workers, the teachers. And I'm not lying. It's hard to do that in an hour. <laughs> mm. I would have liked like a Netflix special, do six <laughs> different stories and work with people and talk to people like mm. Fatima Whitbread and stuff and like who we spoke about earlier and Lorraine Pascal. But I'm not lying. All the responses I got in my DMs via Twitter and Instagram, they were through all those different people. I had some people saying, oh, I've not spoken to my, my half-brother that we fostered for over like 10 years. You know, like I'm going to go and reach out to him. Or... I had, you know, parents going, like, Jimmy, we we just fostered and adopted, da 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 Or actually, Jimmy, as a parent, I had to give up my child. I mm. really appreciate your story. Now I'm talking to my son and we've we've reconnected. Like, it was so emotional to the point where I, I couldn't read everything, but I was mm. so pleased that it was having this impact on people. And that's just one, one piece of work mm. that was made in a different way through a different lens. So part of me goes, well... What if we have a bit more uh, work like that? That is made. That is made from that place of mm. how do you? It's about not about ignoring the the, the tough uh, experiences and 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 the stats, but it is about leaning into the 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 love, the celebration, the that perseverance can lead to a life that maybe society thinks you're not going to have. And you've so that is got, important. Yeah, you've still got your teddy bear, Oswald, from, yeah. <laughs> that you took with you to yeah. foster care. What does that mean to you? And is it strange you've still got it in, in yeah. your Hollywood home? Yeah, like, I think it was because it's the earliest toy. You know, it was like one of my first things that, I had as a kid mm-hmm. um and again i love my foster mom gloria for that because she as a young kid she's like you came to us with this teddy bear you know and the fact that it's still <laughs> it's why still was he there. called oswald oswald i think i named it oswald i don't know why i don't know i think i named it oswald i don't it's quite interesting i i, I don't know and you know i've got a lot of things sort of in the attic and whatnot but i didn't even realize i had packed it you know, I didn't even realize I'd packed it, uh, but it does make sense. It's not like it's on my bed or and whatnot. But obviously, doing the documentary, I was like, "Oh, I've got this thing," and this thing is that I came with the teddy bear and the blue book. Wow. You know, and the blue book told me how my life began <laughs> and mm. showed me the pictures. And the teddy bear, that was the two things that I, I arrived with, and so. And those two things were with me in LA. Looking back to your childhood self when you were three, what do you wish you'd known then that you now know? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I wish I'd known that I did at one point arrive in my biological family's home and it was a moment that I was a part of the family. Mm. In the documentary, my brother Shola talks about he remembers holding me as a baby. And then the next day or two, he's like, where's my brother gone? Mm. I didn't know I was ever with my family, you know? And so I think that would have helped me in terms of like, I'm still missing them, but I did have that moment. 
and uh, the beginning, did, maybe that would have affected me in terms of I didn't feel like I was immediately abandoned. Mm. And I think I would have liked to have known that that I am enough. You know what I mean? That I am enough. Like that that sense of I'm in a home, I was in a children's home, I'm in this situation, but it's not my fault. Mm. I think it is. I'm enough and, and, and whatever I'm going through is not my fault. And, and I think I didn't understand. Again, I, it's really hard when you're a young kid, but I think I was struggling with that at times. I think that sometimes I took on my mum and dad's story and or my dad might, might make it feel like a lot of stuff is my my fault because I look like my mom, <laughs> and you know, in his story, I'm not his. And it was just like I think I I took that stuff on, you know, and uh, and I think that le- that leans into you'll be careful what you say to kids, you know, what language you use, mm-hmm. and yet, but you as a social worker, you still have to explain to a kid as a parent like what's going on because the kids got questions, so, and that's a delicate line. But I do think uh, some things I, I took on that weren't mine. And, and I really do tell a lot of young people, like, whatever position you're in, if you've been through the care system, it really isn't your fault. Don't blame yourself, you know? So maybe that as well. I would have liked to have told my, you know, myself that as a young kid. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest today, Jimmy Akinbola. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.